Please be seated. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Again, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Uh, once you arrive there, we'll read verses 1 through 7. Um, I'll read. Please follow along. Then we'll pray for the Spirit's help in understanding this passage and begin the sermon. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, the passage reads, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Please bow with me. Almighty Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the whole of your word, the whole of the gospel, the whole of special revelation that you give to us. We pray that as we study it, as we come under its authority, that the Holy Spirit would do its work, that we might live holier lives, that we might regard your ways high, that we might regard your methods as true and good and right, and that we might learn from them. So please teach us now by the work of the Spirit so we might honor your name. We might honor the name of Christ by the work of the Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So we're in Acts chapter 6. I know that Aaron has begun a passage in Jude. He's away with the mission team right now. And so I have the privilege of bringing this passage under our study as we submit to it. And I want to give a little bit of background uh, just to begin. The author of the book of Acts is known to be Luke, who's also the author of the third gospel, the gospel of Luke. And what's interesting is in the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke addresses a man named Theophilus, a recipient named Theophilus, as the one who would receive the third gospel. And he says, Theophilus, I've written this orderly account, this gospel account, so you would have confidence in the things which you've been taught concerning the gospel. So Luke's purpose in writing volume one, Luke's gospel, the third gospel, is so Theophilus will have confidence in the things that he's been instructed. What's interesting is when you get to Acts chapter 1, as we go into the book of Acts, you'll see that Luke essentially says, Dear Theophilus, recipient of this letter also, picking up where we left off, I want you to continue to know more things about what proceeded after Christ ascended into the heavens. After Christ died and was resurrected, after he made atonement, after he rose on high and left the disciples and left the apostles, he says there's more to the story. More unfolded after Christ ascended on high to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Volume 2. And what happened is in chapter 2, the promised Holy Spirit, the promised gift of the Lord, the promised gift of the covenant was given and the Holy Spirit was poured out to men and women. The Holy Spirit was poured out so that the gospel might be preached, so the kingdom of God might expand from Jerusalem outwards. 
And this is where the story picks up. And so we're in Jerusalem. Even in chapter 6, we're in Jerusalem. And the apostles and the disciples have been sharing the word of God. And they've been doing the work, ministering primarily to Jews at this time. But Satan assaults the gospel. Satan assaults the word of God. And he challenges the apostles and the disciples. And he challenges the preaching of the word of God. He tra- he, the, uh, Satan challenges the truth of the gospel of Christ being proclaimed in Jerusalem. And the priests, especially the high priests, are calling the disciples before councils, calling them before trials, and saying, what is this that you're saying about Jesus? And they're put in prison, and they're beaten, and they're abused for the very reasons that Christ was called to trial, for the very reasons that Christ was put to the cross. Because Christ claimed to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah, to die for the sins of men. And this is what the apostles were preaching about Christ, and this is why and what Satan was opposing But then something else happened in chapter 5. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And essentially what happened was there was financial fraud. And Satan tried to work from the inside of the church outward and tried to corrupt the church from the inside by creating deceit, by creating distrust, by allowing lies to begin to ferment within the church. Satan is attacking the efficiency of the work of God. The word of God is always being attacked by Satan. But the word of God is always sufficient to stand up against Satan's attack. And we see the same thing unfolding here in Acts chapter 6. And so as we look at the passage, you'll see that a problem unfolds that's interfering with the preaching of the word of God. The problem is this. You've got two groups of people. You've got a group called the Hellenists. We can call them Grecian Jews, Greek Jews. Look in verse 1. It says, there there arose a complaint from the Hellenists. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, but they were Greek in the rhythms of their life. They were Greek in their culture. And then you had the Hebrews, or Aramaic-speaking Jews, ones who would have been more traditionally Jewish in their customs, uh, traditionally Jewish in their rhythms. And so you really have two separate communities of Jewish people who are Christian converts, who are now operating, and they're still going to synagogue. And there's this problem in the church where all of the dots haven't been connected yet, that Christ is really the full fulfillment of all that was anticipated in the Jewish customs, in the temple and in the sacrifices. And so you still have Christians who are still attending temple. They're still attending the synagogues and some of the Jewish worship. And the Christian church was still meeting in temples at this time. There's still clarity to be developed among the early church. But more than that, there's a particular problem. You see, one group that the church is caring for is getting priority over another group that the church is caring for. The Hellenists are saying that the Hebrew Jews... The Aramaic-speaking Jews are getting front of the line for provision for widows. And so we've seen this before. Why are they in the front? Why do they get the front row? Why are they getting the best picks? Why are they getting the first pick of the produce? This is one of the arguments that's arising, and it's interfering with the preaching of the word. But the problem is actually one layer deeper than that. Understand it like this. It says that there were widows that were being neglected. Whenever I ask you, what state has the most retirees in it, most likely? You'd probably say Florida, right? Why? Because people want to go to Florida for the weather. They want to go there for tax benefits. They want to go there for hospital access. They have reasons for moving there, right? But if I ask you what state has the most widows, you might reasonably also answer that Florida has the most widows because it has the most retirees. And as is often the way men will pass before women, well, this is actually something that happens in Jerusalem as well. You see, the New American Commentary would tell us that Jews, as they near the end of their life, if they could afford it, if it was possible, if they had the option, they might move back to Jerusalem 
to be in the holy city, the city of David, the city where the temple stood. Because they know that they're nearing the end of their life. They hope to stand in the presence of God. They hope to get to enjoy eternity in heaven. And whenever they're there, they want to be near those things of glory before they pass on. And so in their mind, they think, if I go to Jerusalem, I'll be that much nearer to God. And so what happened was the men would die and the women would be left. And if you think back to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, women did not inherit ordinarily like we do today. See, today when your spouse, when your husband has a 401k, when he's got an IRA, when you have a trust, the wife is also listed as a, a co-owner or a 100% beneficiary, and she receives and then she manages that estate if the husband passes. But in the Jewish Old Testament, that's not how it worked. Think of the book of Ruth. Think of the situation of Naomi in that story. When her husband passed, she was left at the mercy of her kinsman redeemer who had to marry Ruth for Naomi to be taken care of because Boaz was going to be the one who would inherit her husband's and the male heir's estate. And so you see the problem in Jerusalem. If the women were not taken care of as widows by the kinsman redeemer, they were left to the mercy of the people, to the mercy of the community. This is a real problem, a dire problem. Where will we live? What will we eat? How will we get around? What if we need care? Which one of you, as you get later in years, don't begin to think about these questions, serious questions. And the church is expected to rise to meet these needs as real practical needs, first taking care of believers within the church. And we see the church doing this very thing. But the apostles point out a problem. This practical need is requiring so much attention from those who are called to preach and teach that it's actually interfering with their ability to preach and teach the word. So they propose a solution. We'll appoint leaders. But why? Because it's interfering with the preaching of the word. So that's what I want us to focus on this morning. We had to lay some groundwork because we came into the book of Acts. We came into a specific problem in a specific context. But now that we're all on the same page here, I want you to see that uh, believers need to hear the preached word. Preaching is primary within uh, the church as a need. And it's primary because, one, it's the ordinary means of grace by where men and women hear the gospel, by where they understand the gospel. It's the ordinary means by which God makes the gospel plain to men and women so they can believe and live in light of it. Second, what I want you to see is that other ministries extend from the gospel understood from preaching. Other ministries, like Care for Widows, extends from the gospel proclaimed and understood. Third, I want you to understand that quality leaders, leaders undergird this work. We see in verse 3 the list of the qualities of the leaders that were appointed. Quality leaders are needed so the word can be preached. And last, just briefly, I want you to see that preaching has an effect. And it's why we should give attention to other ministries. And it's why we should make sure that preaching has a protected place within the church. So let's look first at the first thing. We see that preaching is the ordinary means of grace and of salvation. It's the primary way that people know the gospel. If you went to 1 Corinthians 1, you'd see that Paul says that it pleased God through uh, the preaching of the gospel to save those who would believe. It pleased God to use preaching, the foolishness of preaching, the simplicity of preaching, so that men could know the greatest truth that was ever shared to mankind, which is that salvation can be had. Man can be restored to his place with God through the blood of Christ, the Son of God. It's through preaching that that's understood. But it's through prayer-soaked preaching. You'll see that the sermon is titled Prayer and Preaching. Preaching has to be soaked in prayer. 
The, the congregation has to be considered. The will of God has to be considered. The, the meaning of the text has to be considered, prayed over, mulled over. This is the work of the pastor. This is the work of the priest, preacher. This is the work of who God gives to a congregation so they might benefit from the word of God Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Think of it like this. So many of us are from Kansas City. So many of us have been in the Midwest for so long. We're familiar with the concept of smoked barbecue. And one of the keys to smoked barbecue, good, soft, tender meat, is the idea of low and slow, low heat, slow heat. So that way the heat will penetrate down to the bone of the meat. So the meat will fall off the bone. It's the same way with prayer. And especially with the preaching of the word. The preaching has to be soaked in prayer. The preaching has to sit under prayer. So that way the man that God uses as a conduit might be able to release the meat from the bone and set it before you so that way it might actually benefit you. Think about it like this. There's a man named Robert Murray McShane from the 1800s. He was a a Presbyterian Puritan preacher. He died by the age of 30, but he's known for having a tremendous ministry even up until the age of 30. And one of the things that marked his ministry was his prayer life. His preaching was astonishing, but it was well known, and he gave credit to his prayer life for the effectiveness of his preaching. And if you go to the chapel where he used to preach, you can actually see the place in the ground where his knees used to hit the wood. And there are wear marks. There are essentially prayer calluses in the ground where he used to pray in preparation for his sermons. And his church blessed him with time to focus on prayer and focus on preaching, focus on study, so that he might bless them with the preached word. But it's more than that. Paul even tells us in Romans 10, I'm going to read a piece of scripture to you from Romans 10, starting in verse 13. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard of? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. How blessed we are to have a pastor like Aaron, who God has given to this church, who Sunday in and Sunday out preaches to us, prepares the word of God. Praise the Lord that he gives ministers that provide the word of God to the people so we could understand and praise. What a privilege for each of us to get to sit under his preaching. How wonderful. What a blessing from God that he provides to us a man to do the work that he says is essential. You see, what Paul is saying in Romans 10 is that if men are going to know the gospel, it has to be preached to them. And God has to call a man to preach the word to people so they can believe. Which one of us would be saved if the word of God wasn't preached in? Which one of us? Think back to how you came to understand the gospel. Think back to how you grew in the gospel. Wasn't it through the preaching of the word that God provided? Praise the Lord for the work he's done in the past and the work we pray that he'll continue. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul is speaking to Timothy, and Timothy was one of his students, one of his disciples. Timothy was a fellow, young, up-and-coming pastor. He was assigned to a work in a city. Paul cared greatly for Timothy. Timothy was charged with the preaching of the word. Uh, I listened to a sermon from 2007 by Derek Thomas, a well-known pastor, and Derek Thomas calls 2 Timothy uh, Paul's swan song because this is one of the last letters that Paul will write before he ultimately comes to his death. And with some of his last words, Paul says to Timothy, with some of the last words he could have given to a fellow pastor, a preacher, a teacher, someone charged with the care and the feeding and the nourishment of the people of God, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when the people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I heard one time an interview of John MacArthur, a preacher out in California, and someone was asking him, uh, John, you've got a wonderful ministry, it's, it's grown, you've got a large church, and it's known for focusing on the Word of God. John, let me ask you, if you were to give a tip to young pastors today, what they need to do to have an increasing number of people coming to the church, to have a blessed church, what would you say that pastor should do? And John essentially quoted, Dr. MacArthur quoted 2 Timothy 4 three times. He just said, preach the Word, preach the Word, preach the Word. And I'm encouraged by this congregation. We're blessed to be in this church because this church values the preaching of the word of God. It values the truth of the scriptures. It values the essential nature that the place the word of God has over this congregation in the life of the believer. If you even look at the way that this room is set up, the chairs face the pulpit. The chairs face a pulpit which is centered, a pulpit which is elevated. Not because of the man who's behind the pulpit, but because the word of God which presides over the pulpit. Because the word of God which rests upon the pulpit, which presides over the congregation. This is the value of the word of God to us and the place it has in our lives as Christians. It's our very lifeblood. It's our very bread of life. We need the word of God. We're within a congregation that's known as the Presbyterian Church of America, Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA. We actually make distinctions between what we call ruling elders and teaching elders. And it's not the only reason that we make this distinction, but one of the reasons we make that distinction is so a specific attention can be given to the preparation of the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. So Pastor Aaron is a teaching elder, specifically set aside to prepare lessons and to study the word of God, thinking of you for your benefit so that you might know the word of God better, so you might live holy lives pleasing to God. How blessed are we to live in a congregation to exist within a congregation that values the word of God, where they actually say, we know the word of God is so special, we are dedicating men and women to an office under the direction of God so that the uh, congregation might be cared for, might be blessed, might live the way that they're expected to live. The Westminster Catechism, uh, shorter, shorter Catechism number three, it essentially says, um, what do the scriptures principally or primarily teach? And the shorter answer is, it teaches uh, what man is to believe concerning God and what God requires of man. So if the scriptures are where we go to know what God requires of us and what we're supposed to believe concerning him, isn't it a wonderful thing that those things are explained to us from the scriptures by someone who gets to study and learn those things? But there's more than that in this passage. You see, there are pastors in this passage in chapter 6. You see, the 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 apostles understand as they're preaching that when the preaching is being interfered with, that they're not getting to love the congregation as God has called them to. Understand the heart of a pastor preacher. Understand the heart of a shepherd. The heart of the shepherd is like this. Uh, another pastor named Alistair Begg, he says that the heart of a pastor is like this. The heart of a pastor is one who is called to the pulpit like a sailor is called to the sea. He longs to be in the pulpit because he knows when he's there, he's able to serve the congregation by reminding them of the truth of the gospel. Christ who died for you and rose for you and lives for you and rules for you. That's done from this position right behind this pulpit. 
What a wonderful thing. And if a pastor doesn't get to preach, he feels like the, the burning within him would explode, would come out of him. He wouldn't be able to control it. But hear the words of your Savior. Hear the words of Christ in Luke, chapter in Luke chapter 13. Christ said, speaking of Jerusalem, as he went there to be sacrificed for the people who he was going to die for to redeem, he said, how often would I have gathered your children, O Jerusalem, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And he says, the Jews in Jerusalem weren't willing. The same Jews who are resisting the apostles in chapter 6 of the book Acts here. The same fight the apostles are fighting. The same opposition that Jesus faced. More scripture. I can't give you enough about the preaching of the word of God and what it means for us for our lives as Christians. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we read that the apostles say, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as disciples of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Praise the Lord for elders and for pastors who consider you very dear to them, who meet monthly to pray for you, who meet weekly to pray for you, who consider you and lead flock groups and shepherding groups and home fellowship groups, who gather even in Sunday evenings and come and prepare the church for you to gather into, so that you might know the word of God that we might be a unified, blessed congregation under the gospel. But the, James 3 tells us that not many should become teachers and preachers because they'll face a stricter judgment. But they'll face stricter judgment because they're teaching. So this assumes that they're actually teaching. And so that means that time has to be set aside for teaching. And so our second point, and the other points will be shorter than the beginning, but we had to focus on the word of God to understand these other points. Ministry extends from the gospel understood, and the gospel is understood from the gospel preached. If you ask, why were the widows being ministered to in this passage in Acts chapter 6? Why were they receiving provision from the church? Isn't it because the ones who were ministering to the widows understood the gospel? Understood that they had been provided for when they had need, and so therefore they should provide for others who have need? Isn't that, that the foundation of ministry, of mercy ministry, of food pantry ministry, of ministry to expecting mothers? Isn't that, isn't that the basis of all ministry? The gospel, and if it's not from the foundation of the gospel, it's not from the foundation of the teaching of the apostles, is it in step with the Spirit? Isn't that something by which we should judge the value of all ministry? Is it being done from the basis of the gospel? Is it being done ultimately to glorify Christ? See, the apostles affirm the goodness, the rightness of feeding the widows. They say this is an essential ministry. We want to care for these people. We just can't do it at the expense of the preaching of the word, or else this church won't be here in 10 years. This church won't be here in 20 years. We have to preach the word so that that ministry can continue as well, so those might know that their needs are being met, so that they might come and hear the gospel preach and come to believe savingly on Jesus Christ. Think of William Booth and the Salvation Army. He ministered, he was a Methodist preacher, and he ministered to people and their physical needs so that they might not have any obstacles between them and hearing the gospel. So they might come back and hear the preached word and be saved. The lesson here is that one good thing can get in the way of another good thing. That's a consideration for us as believers. Each one of us 
has specific needs, specific family needs. We want to see things develop within the church. Maybe we want to see a more robust, robust youth ministry. Maybe we want to see summer camps. Maybe we want to see men's retreats. Maybe we want to see uh, uh, weekly studies that aren't happening right now. Maybe we want to see a food pantry open. As we consider to present these things to the elders, as we consider to seek the church's support for these extra ministries, the extension ministries from the gospel, be prepared to answer the question, what is this going to tell people about Christ? Because I can guarantee you that the heart of every pastor is ultimately that that ministry would lead people to know more about the gospel of Christ. My roommate, my first year in seminary, his name was Matthew. He married a wonderful young lady named Anna Kate. And Anna Kate had a connection to this place called Palmer Home. It was a children's home. It was a youth ministry uh, uh, in Mississippi. And it's kind of set aside on an estate. It's set aside on a piece of land. And when you go to the about page of the website of the Palmer Home, you would read, before you even get into the timeline of 1865, the first building was erected and this church did this work, the introduction says this. It says, take a look at Palmer Holmes' history, beginning with a biblical call and hope to communicate the love of Christ to children in need. Now, they have an expansive ministry in, uh, uh, in Mississippi that reaches to a huge number of children, bringing them in, offering counseling services, offering them food, offering them shelter, trying to restore them in body and in spirit so that they might live a whole life unto the glory of God. But the end goal is so they'll live that life unto the glory of God. The purpose of all ministry is that people would honor Christ with their lives and the work that they do. What wonderful examples we have. A couple others, you think of Samaritan's Purse, an extension of Billy Graham's ministry. You think of pregnancy centers here in Kansas City and abroad. Isn't it ultimately that not only that child would be born when, they receive a, when the mother receives a free sonogram, but that that child would also grow up in uh, the fear and admonition of the Lord and praise the Lord for Christ, their Savior, who they've come to submit to and come to take joy in and come to hear the words of Sunday after Sunday. But for all this work to happen and for it to work well, we need quality leaders. That's our next point. We need quality leaders because they undergird, they insulate, they protect the opportunity for the word of God to be preached. You think of Moses in the desert. Moses was overseen. He was being overtaxed because he was adjudicating over these small cases. You took my farm animal. No, you took my farm animal. Your tent is coming into my space. No, your tent is coming into my space. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came to him and said, Moses, you don't have the time to do your primary work of leading this nation and also adjudicate over these other issues. They're important issues, but you can't get caught up in both. Assign trustworthy elders by 50s and 20s and 10s to oversee this group so that way you can focus on the greater needs of this nation. The same is true with the preaching of the word. Let me ask you a question. Is it essential or non-essential that competent leaders are assigned or competent employees are hired to a role. When you post a job online, let's say you're an employer and you post a job online, do you want someone who meets the qualifications or someone who doesn't? Obviously, you want someone who meets the qualifications, right? But if you've ever filled out a job application online on Indeed or something like that, you'll see that there's a job description. Here's what the job is. Here's what you're going to do every day. And then there's going to be a section that says, here's what we prefer. We'd really love for you to have five years' experience. It would be really great if you had that. It would really be great if you had this type of referral. It would really be great if you had worked in this country for a little while or uh, worked with this company for a little while. But then there's that section that says required. Must have this much education in this field. 
must have this many years of experience. Because if the person doesn't meet those requirements, they can't do the job. Ultimately, you're going to end up having to watch that employee. You're either going to have to try and teach them the role, or they're going to leave the job undone, and then you're going to have to start back at square one. So what are the qualifications for, for elders, or the, not elders, the qualifications for leaders for this type of service that insulates the preaching of the word of God and allows extension ministry to happen? Look at verse 3. In verse 3, you'll see, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will point to this duty. So those three features are full of the spirit, full of wisdom, and a good reputation. Full of the Spirit. What does that imply at a minimum? They're believers, but full of the Spirit. It's not just they have the Spirit, full of the Spirit. There's a fullness that's exhibited in their life. They're living holy lives. They're living godly lives. You look at the way they live, and you're like, I believe that they're a Christian. I want them to represent the church. I know that they're representing Christ well when they go out on behalf of the church and behalf of Christ doing this work. They're full of wisdom. They have experience. Not just biblical wisdom, but they have life experience. They're able to oversee with excellence the work that's done because the spirit is in a spirit of confusion and things need to be done in good order because Christ's church is an orderly church and the spirit is a spirit of bringing things out of order into order. That is the nature and the character of the works of God from the church. And lastly, a good reputation. You think about the requirements even for elders. You go to the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus and you see that they can't be drunkards, they can't be given to much wine, they can't be adulterers, they have to be the husband of one wife. You think of all these requirements, and they're good requirements for the protection of the ministry, for the protection of the church, for the well-being of the care of the sheep of God. And lastly, I want you to see in verse 6, it says that they set these before the apostles. They found the seven candidates by name, and they set them before the apostles. But the apostles essentially have veto power. The apostles who were appointed, the apostles who were uh, uh, supported, the apostles who were put in this position of leadership have the right to exercise discretion to say, the first five you gave me, yeah, let's put them to the work. But the other two, we think for the care of the congregation, maybe not just yet for those guys. That is the weight of the responsibility of the apostles and in light of that, the weight of the responsibilities for the elders of our church to consider who is right and at the right time for certain positions within the church. And so whenever they interview you before you uh, become a Bible teacher, and whenever they interview you before you begin to lead over a ministry, and whenever they interview you to see what your plan is before you lead uh, a Bible study or before you lead Vacation Bible School or whatever it might be, they're doing that for the care of the church. So they've done their due diligence to make sure it's done in excellence to the standard of the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. And something interesting here is that they actually chose Greeks to remedy. See, there's wisdom even in the plan here. The seven men that they choose actually all have Greek names. They actually would have appealed, those who had been elected, they would have appealed to the people who were complaining about the problem. Hey, we the Hellenists, we the Greek speakers, we're being neglected. So what do they do in their wisdom? They elect Greek speakers. And it's like, okay, let your own people help us solve this problem. They understand your needs the best. They're closest to this problem. There's a practical side to it. How much wisdom has to be exhibited so the word of God can be preached in full? But I want you to see that this is all unto something. It's all to an end goal. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The church grew. Men and women were saved, especially those who thought they already knew their Bibles, but hadn't understood what Christ's role in the whole picture was. Men are converted. The gospel spreads. The church grows. The kingdom of God advances. Your family members in heaven who are waiting for us when we get there, other people who are going to be your neighbors in heaven, people who you're going to worship next to, are being saved day by day by day because God has graced us with the preaching of the word so we might know the gospel. How blessed, how wonderful, how gracious God is to provide that to us and to provide it in every generation. Were it not for the preaching of the word, we would not know the gospel. And if it weren't for knowing of the gospel, we would not be saved. How wonderful we are to be blessed by knowledge of the gospel. But understand that growth isn't guaranteed. A preacher can preach excellently. And not only may a church might not grow, but it may actually shrink. There are some people uh, in olden times talking about good preaching after bad preaching. You have a minister who wasn't preaching the gospel, and then he leaves, and they hire in a new minister, and he begins to preach the actual gospel. He begins to preach truth. He's not tickling their ears anymore. He's not just entertaining them, but he's saying, you are not right before God without Christ, and you can't live a holy life apart from the Spirit, and you have a dire need, and none of your works are acceptable before God apart from the work of Christ. Your very best works of righteousness are filthy rags before the Lord, as Isaiah says. But if you have Christ, everything is right. If you have Christ, now you can live unto God's glory. When you begin to preach that way to people who haven't been preached like that, they may begin to leave because they may have never wanted to hear that. That may have not been what they were showing up for. What a work the pastor has to do. What a challenge the elders have as they begin to preach the word in an area, in a region that might not have had the full gospel preached before. Think of the apostles and the disciples in Jerusalem who are preaching and the adversity they're going to face. As the gospel is preached more clearly in light of what Christ has accomplished than has ever been done before in the history of the church or the history of mankind, Christ explains to the apostles, this is why I did what I did. And now they're going out and carrying that message with the spirit indwelling them do you think there's going to be some opposition? Opposition, surely. Think of the challenge that you face whenever you're with your family members during the holidays, or maybe you went on summer vacations already. Maybe you're going to go on summer vacations to the beach or a beach house or camping or wherever you go to spend time with your extended family, your siblings and your cousins, your nieces and your nephews and your grandparents and your aunts and your uncles. And you know there are people there that you're going to talk to that aren't Christians. And eventually you're going to sit down and you're going to be at a picnic table. You're going to be at a dinner table. And that conversation about, let's talk about that church thing. Uh, The church is just this. The church is just that. And you know they don't believe. But the conversation, you're in it all the way. You want them to know the gospel. And the longer the conversation goes, the more tired you become. And then they leave and maybe the conversation ends and you think they don't understand the gospel any more than they did before the conversation started. And how do you feel? You feel exhausted. You feel drained. You're ready for a nap. You are done for the day. That is the work and the toil with which the pastor is supposed to drain himself to the level of every single Sunday. Because he knows what's at stake. The fields are white for harvest. There are men and women who need to know the gospel, need to be reminded of the gospel, need to be pointed back to Christ Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, themselves and the congregation. What an exhausting work. Praise the Lord that he sustains any man, any leader for that work for any amount of time. Paul himself said, who is sufficient for these things? 
It's not a work that a man can do on his own, but only by the support of God and the Holy Spirit and his intentions. And the pastor wants you to leave like you're leaving an armory. You come in from the trenches. You're battle-worn. The Bible talks about spiritual warfare as warfare. He says you're going to be exhausted. You've got to fight. You've got to go out. You've got to be alert. You've got to be aware. You can't fall asleep spiritually. You need tools to be able to succeed in life spiritually, to be able to honor Christ. And so you come into the church to be equipped. You come into the church to be fed, to be nourished, to rest, to be restored by the preaching of the word, by the proclaiming of the gospel, to go back out into the trenches, to do gospel work, to tell people about the gospel, to show them this is what a gospel family looks like. I parent as a gospel parent. I work as a gospel employee. I, I explain the gospel as someone who loves the word of God. What a work for each of you and for me. We have to be equipped. We come into the armory of God to leave equipped. And as I close, even now, we have missionaries who are in Mexico. But to what purpose? They're going to put on events for kids. They're going to, they're going to play games. They're going to have studies. But to what purpose? Ultimately, hopefully, that men and women will hear the gospel, that children will hear the gospel, that they'll believe that Jesus died for them, that they have an account that needs to be rectified, and they believe savingly on Christ. We pray that that's happening right now in Mexico. We pray that that's happening with the work and the efforts that are being put out. And we pray that the Spirit is working alongside that so that one day those men and women and children and elderly would believe the gospel. So as I commend three things to you, I'll commend this in closing. Continue supporting the preached word of God. Continue supporting the preached word of God. Thank the Lord for it. Pray for Aaron as he preaches Sunday in and Sunday out. Pray for other pastors and preachers who come to preach in this pulpit because the word of God and the clarity of the gospel has an opportunity to shine forth from the pulpit. Second, eagerly offer your talents to the church's various ministries, whether they're new ministries that are forming or whether they're established ministries. Offer your talents to those ministries. Offer yourselves so that the gospel could reach further, so that the kingdom of God would advance, knowing that the ultimate purpose is for the gospel to be understood. And lastly, praise God for his word, written and preached, because the fields are white for harvest. And many more hopefully will be saved before the return of Christ. And we also pray that Christ returns soon. Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we thank you for your written word. We thank you for your word preached. We thank you for men who, not of themselves, but by your calling and not of their adequacy, but uh, by you making them for a purpose uh, to have your word preached. We pray that more men and women would continue to be saved. We pray that you would uh, continue to bless churches across this nation and across the globe. We pray that your word would be proclaimed, that you would protect it from the attacks and assaults of Satan, that you would allow additional ministries to form, that they would grow and be a proclamation of the gospel. We pray that you would bless this church's efforts, both in the preaching of the word and also in additional ministries to our children, to our families, to our elderly, to our widows. We pray that you would make us wise to steward these responsibilities well so Christ might be glorified. Lord, we ask your help in these things in Christ's name.